0: And welcome, strange seeds. You're listening to the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. Open your mind, take off that flesh suit, and dive into primordial waters as we swim through the mystical and magical weird phenomenon, unsettling synchronicities, and the truly terrifying. I'm your host, Brit. Alright, this week's episode is going to be about life on Mars, as promised in uh, whatever episode it was that I spoke about this episode uh, being a thing. I think it was the psychic experiments episode. Anyways, let's go ahead and dive right in. It's a tantalizing subject, an itch we can't seem to scratch enough as a collective human species, despite how much we're learning about the Red Planet. Is there, and was there ever, life on Mars? Over the last 60 years or so, we've progressed quite a bit in our collective understanding of Mars. Or so we think, right? Since the recent launch and successful landing of several probes and other vehicles, like Ingenuity, Perseverance, and the Hope Orbiter, we as a human race have been able to see the Red Planet up close and personal, in detail we never have before. As many of you already know, NASA launched Perseverance on July 30th, 2020 with the mission to collect and transmit valuable data from Mars back to Earth so we can assess the viability of long-term manned missions there. Slowly, we're speculating what life as we know it could look like, or could have looked like, on Mars, and how we could potentially survive as a colony given the surface conditions and our current understanding of the Red Planet. Man missions to Mars, and subsequently the dream to colonize, are a hot topic as of late, causing arguments from both sides. Those who are pro-Mars missions and those who are not, arguing that we instead need to focus our power and resources on things happening here on Earth. Not that you were asking for my opinion on the matter, (laughs) but I'm all for both. Stephen Hawking even stated that we should focus some of our efforts and brain power on reaching Mars, and elsewhere arguing that we should assume that our window of opportunity to do so is small rather than large, even stating that, to stay, risks annihilation. According to Hawking, the cost of manned missions to Mars would only take up about a quarter of the world's total GDP, which, in his words, is well worth it for our future's sake. I've linked a couple of videos in the episode description for you guys, if you're interested in hearing directly from uh, the Hawkman himself. Is that rude? I hope not. Um, You can hear directly from Hawking himself, if you'd like. I I recommend watching and listening. They're very informative. When the greatly anticipated high-budget film The Martian was released in 2015, and holy shit, it's really hard to believe that that was six years ago, what a time warp. Anyways, when The Martian was released, a lot of us with red planet panties in a wad rushed to soak in the visual representation of the first Martian and his endeavors and attempts to survive alone on the planet. The movie is actually an adaptation of Andy Weir's... Weir? Oh god, I'm so sorry, I'm probably butchering that. Freshly published 2011 book by the same title. This movie and book, along with all of the other Martian-related science fiction greats, including When Mars Attacks, A Princess of Mars, A Stranger in a Strange Land, and more, do nothing but further fan the flames of our interest in and daydreaming of inhabiting the seemingly inhospitable planet. Let's dive a little deeper into the human history of Mars and discuss some of our earliest explorations to the planet. Taking a step back in time, we're traveling first to the ancient times. Bear with me here, I promise I won't turn this into an episode of Ancient Aliens. Called Nergal, the great hero by the Babylonians, and known as Mars, god of war by the Romans or Ares by the Greeks, we've long since studied the fiery, red, teeny ball of light in the sky. Though the ancients did have developed star mapping systems and recorded observations, it wasn't until 1877 that Mars's orbit came close enough to our own that people could train their telescopes and view the planet in more detail. When the oblong Martian orbit reaches its closest point to another planetary entity like Earth, we call it... A great opposition, and we actually had one last year. Sorry if my science there was flawed. Maybe it's specifically when Mars approaches Earth that we call it a great opposition. So correct me if if you know. Anyways, in 1877, many astronomers and researchers alike took to their telescopes and other space, couti- space scouting instruments to observe Mars and its proximity. One of such astronomers was an Italian by the name of Giovanni Schiaparelli, who was the first to record what he called canali, apparently meaning channels or grooves. Other scientists and astronomers like Percival Lowe were so enthralled with these discoveries that they jumped to the conclusion that that this was irrefutable proof of intelligent civilizations existing elsewhere in the solar system. This wave of Mars hysteria and romance led to some of the most well-known Martian science fiction of all time, including the infamous The War of the Worlds, written in 1897 by H.G. Wells, and then later adapted and broadcast as a Halloween special by the same name that was orated by Orson Welles in 1938. Now apparently, some of the people listening at the time missed the part of the broadcast that informed them that it was only a radio drama, thus causing them to believe that Grover's Mill, New Jersey, along with the rest of Earth, was actually being invaded by aliens from Mars. The canal-like channels on Mars aren't the only spicy discoveries that have led us to ponder the existence of aliens on the planet. In fact, in 1976, two Viking orbiters whooshed around the red planet, sending down landcraft and transmitting over tens of thousands of photographs of the planet's red Iron Ridge surface. And one of these photos, taken over the Cydonia region of Mars, shows what some believe to be a large face. Others show what look like pyramids, shaped structures. I mean, these photos were so convincing to some that, that many were inspired to write science fiction stories of their own, some that were fronted as truth. These mysterious forms led Richard Hoagland to write his novel, The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever. Published in 1992, Hoagland takes readers by the hand and walks through the NASA photos from the 1976 Viking missions, charts, and other data collected regarding the infamous face on Mars and the pyramid structures, arguing that they're evidence of a long-lost, technologically advanced Martian civilization. I don't want to make him sound too crazy, though. Believe it or not, many people believe that other planets were likely inhabited by people similar to us leading their own daily lives before we knew much about the conditions on other planets. These days, of course, scientists and NASA claim that the structures are very natural, and even show more recent photos of the so-called face, showing the erosion and mesa from similar angles as to the angles that the older photographs were taken at. So you guys have probably figured out by now that the books that make up the raw material are some of my favorite reads. I usually end up including excerpts and points from one or more of the books in the episodes, and this episode is no exception. Sorry. In fact, I think the Law of One books are more than relevant to the content matter of this week's dive. In the books, the social memory complex known simply as RAW Tells of ancient life on Mars and how the lost civilizations, for the most part, were harvested abruptly during their third density cycle due to the destruction of the planet, making the surface essentially inhospitable for the advanced life forms living there. I'd like to share just a few more excerpts from the book for your listening pleasure. Here's the first. Questioner. The original first entities on this planet, what was their origin? Where were they before they were on this planet? Ra. I am Ra. The first entities upon this planet were water, fire, air, and earth. Questioner, Where did the people who were like us who were the first ones here, where did they come from? From where did they evolve? Ra. I am Ra. You speak of third density experience. The first of those to come here were brought from another planet in your solar system called by you, the red planet, Mars. This planet's environment became inhospitable to third-density beings. The first entities, therefore, were of this race, as you may call it, manipulated somewhat by those who were guardians at that time. Questioner. What race is that, and how did they get from Mars to here? Ra, I am Ra. The race is a combination of the mind-body-spirit complexes of those of your so-called red planet and a careful series of genetical adjustments made by the guardians of that time. These entities arrived, or were preserved, for the experience upon your sphere by a type of birthing which is non-reproductive, but consists of preparing genetic material for the incarnation of the mind body spirit complexes of those entities from the red planet. Questioner I assume from what you are saying that the Guardians transferred the race here after the race had died from the physical as we know it on Mars. Is that correct? Ra. I am Ra. This is correct. This next piece, also from book one in the series, talks a little about the transition of Martian souls to Earth after their harvest and how they might have some connection to what we know as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Alrighty. Questioner. Have many, have any of these entities moved on now, made a graduation at the end of a cycle and made the transition from second density bodies to third density bodies? Ra. I am raw. Many of these entities were able to remove the accumulation of what you call karma, thus being able to accept a third density cycle within a third density body. Most of those beings so succeeding have incarnated elsewhere in the creation for the succeeding cycle in third density. As this planet reached third density, some few of these entities became able to join the vibration of this sphere in third density form. There remain a few who have not yet alleviated through the mind-body-spirit coordination of distortions the previous action taken by them. Therefore, they remain. Questioner. Are these the Bigfoot that you spoke of? Ra. I am Ra. These are one type of Bigfoot. In discussing the difference between densities, the questioner and Ra say the following. Questioner. Then what was the 2nd density form, what did it look like, that became Earth Man in the 3rd density? What did he look like in the 2nd density? Raw. I am raw. The difference between 2nd and 3rd density bodily forms would in many cases have been more like one to the other. In the case of your planetary sphere, the process was interrupted by those who incarnated here from the planetary sphere you call Mars. They were adjusted by genetic changing and, therefore, there was some difference which was of a very noticeable variety rather than the gradual raising of the bipedal forms upon your second density level to third density level. This has nothing to do with the so-called placement of the soul. This has only to do with the circumstances of the influx of those from that culture." A lot of information presented throughout the books is restated or asked again for further clarification or confirmation of understanding. This is evident in this next and final excerpt from Book 1, where the questioner confirms his understanding of the harvest cycles using earth times. The way I understand it, at the beginning of this 75,000 year cycle, then, we had a mixture of entities those who had graduated from second density on Earth to become third density, and then a group of entities transferred from the planet Mars to continue third density here. Is this correct? Ra. I am Ra. This is correct. You must remember that those transferred to this sphere were in the middle of their third density, so that this third density was an adaptation rather than a beginning. Questioner. What percentage of the entities who were here in 3rd density at that time were Martian, and what percentage were harvested from Earth's 2nd density? Raw. I am raw. There were perhaps one-half of the 3rd density population being entities from the red planet Mars, as you call it, perhaps one-quarter from 2nd density of your planetary sphere approximately one-quarter from other sources, other planetary spheres, whose entities chose this planetary sphere for third-density work. Aside from the raw material, there are several other fascinating tales surrounding intelligent inhabitants of the Red Planet. Boriska Kiprianovich is one such acclaimed inhabitant, though in a past life. Born in the Volgograd region of Russia in 1996, Boris, affectionately called Boriska, portrayed signs of extreme intelligence as a child, being able to recognize faces early on as an infant, and being able to speak and write at barely two years of age. His mother tells of his extraordinarily high IQ, claiming that from a very young age Boris began telling her of conditions on Mars and his previous life as a Martian. As the family states, they told Boris nothing of space and of our neighboring planet, and his descriptive details baffled scientists and must have originated from somewhere, right? As Boris tells it, Mars was once home to an abundance of extremely intelligent life forms from different areas, coexisting not so peacefully in his lifetime there. Speaking of lifetimes, apparently Martians stop aging at around 35, Boris says and they live very long lives, I guess they're almost immortal. Martians of Boris's old days are very tall and breathe mostly carbon dioxide, which would make it nearly impossible for Martians to breathe our Earth air and survive. He remembers being a young Martian and taking part in interstellar raids, even whizzing by our planet Earth to see the teeming life present here. Due to the ongoing conflicts and wars being waged on the Red Planet, Boris says that most of the population was annihilated by nuclear war, leaving the planet nearly inhospitable and wiping out most life. There are, however, some ancient Martians that still reside underground, according to Boris. He continues to warn us that if we don't change our current strategies with the powers that be, our planet is in danger of the same total destruction. In fact, that's why Boris is here, incarnated as an Earthling, to warn us against nuclear devastation and planetary wipeout. He is part of a group that call themselves the Indigo Children, which are supposedly advanced spiritual beings incarnated here on Earth, or I guess more advanced than we are currently, incarnated here on Earth as warriors of sorts, sent to help Earth and her children toward a more cohesive, harmonious path. The planet Mars and its inhabitants is a 1920s account of a medium who channeled a Martian by the name of Eros Eurides in order to gain insight into Martian life and civilization. Here's a snippet from the beginning of the book giving a similar bit of background to what we see being portrayed in other Martian stories and reports. In telling the story of Mars, you must be prepared to believe that, from a physical point of view, the Martians are just human beings, differing little from the people of your Earth. Martians work and have their recreations. They enjoy the fruits of their Earth as you do the fruits of yours. They have invented labor-saving machinery and indulge in a multitude of industrial pursuits, but with this difference. Their economic system is such that the life of the Martian is not the struggle for existence you have created on your Earth. On the contrary, it is a pleasurable life in which work is as much enjoyed as is recreation. This condition is due to two causes. First, Mars is much further advan- farther advanced as a world in its evolutionary career. Second, the spiritual enfoldment of its inhabitants is proportionately advanced. Ruled by love, the planet, according to the channeled Martian, has no political system, and individuals technically have no rights to property or land. The economic systems, education, as well as simple Martian life are all discussed in the book, which, again, according to the spokes-Martian, is the first compiled history of Mars as told by its people. It's a bit religious, but if you're into that stuff, I suggest giving it a read. As always, I will link it in the reading recommendations. Next, in 1947, a man named William Ferguson was in his home relaxing one evening in January and took a mental trip to Mars. He tells of his out-of-body experiences to the planet, as well as his astral trips to other sources of creation and celestial fountains of knowledge, in his short work titled My Trip to Mars. On his trip to our red neighbor, Ferguson met who he called a great celestial being named Kauga. I'm probably saying that wrong. Kauga tells Ferguson that he was brought there to listen to knowledge of the planet and to bring back a message to Earth. Ferguson is then shown a fourth-dimensional wondrous city in Mars, rich with vegetation and clean city streets, where apparently the temperature is a constant 76 degrees, according to Kouga, and they even make their own weather, something that we have recently dabbled with here on Earth. Ferguson claims that they all levitated instead of walking around, and that every single Martian he saw while there was a redhead. Hmm. Despite the other stories we've heard that state that the people of Mars were tall beings, Ferguson claims that Martians are actually about a foot shorter than the people of Earth, on average, of course. He also describes how power how Martians power everything, teleport, and hold council. The structure of the story is a bit hard to follow, but nonetheless, I found it a quick and interesting read, and please take it with a grain of salt, like everything else. The final document we'll review is one we dove into during episode 4 about psychic experiments, and I'm excited to jump back into it. It's the CIA declassified document, Mars Exploration, May ni- May twenty second, 1984. So let's recap. The remote viewer, dubbed subject, is only verbally given a set of coordinates along with a 3x5 card that simply reads, The planet Mars... Time of interest, approximately 1 million years B.C. Once into the session, the monitor has to redirect the subject several times to only report on the visuals instead of trying to figure things out, though I probably would be in the same boat as the subject, wondering like what the fuck was going on. The subject calls the planet ochre-colored and describes the terrain and pyramid-like structures that are visible, along with many other intriguing details. Here's the subject describing the people he's saying. Subject. I'm seeing, uh, it's like a perception of a shadow of people. Very tall, thin, it's only a shadow. It's as if they were there and they're not. Not there anymore. Monitor. Go back to a period of time when they were there. Subject. Um, he mumbles something. It's like I get a lot of static on a line and everything. It's breaking up all the time, very fragmentary pieces. Monitor. Just report the raw data, don't try to put things together. Just report the raw data. Subject. I just keep seeing very large people. They appear to be thin and tall, but they're very large. Uh, wearing some kind of strange clothes. A little further on, the monitor encourages the subject to interact with these ancient people and the structures they've created. Monitor. Alright, go inside one of these and find some activity to tell me about. Apparently 37 minutes later, the subject finally says different chambers, but they're almost stripped of any kind of furnishings or anything. It's like a Strictly functional place for sleeping, or that's not a good word, Hibernations, some form, I can't. I get real raw input. Storm, savage storm, and sleeping through storms. Monitor says, tell me about the ones who sleep through the storms. Subject. Uh, very tall, again, very large people but they're thin. They look thin because of their height, and they dress like in, oh, hell. It's like a real light silk, but it's not flowing type of clothing. It's like cut to fit. Monitor. Move close to one of them and ask them to tell you about themselves. Subject. They're ancient people. They're, uh, they're dying. It's past their time or age. Monitor. Tell me about this. Subject. They're very philosophic about it. They're looking for a a way to survive, and they just can't. Apparently, after 40 more minutes, the subject says, Can't seem to get their way out. They can't seem to find their way out. So they're hanging on while they look or wait for something to return or something coming with the answer. What is it they're waiting for? The monitor asks. Subject. There, uh, evidently was a a group or a party of them that went to find a new place to live. It's like I'm getting all kinds of overwhelming input of the corruption of their environment. It's falling very rapidly and this group went somewhere like a long way to find another place to live. Monitor. What was the cause of the atmospheric disturbance or the environment disturbance? Subject. I see a picture of a, picture of like a, oh hell, it's almost a warp in a, oh god, this is difficult, it's like going, let's see, monitor, the raw data, subject, oh, I get a globe, uh it's like a globe that goes through a comet's tail, or it's through a river of something, but it's all very cosmic, it's like space pictures, monitor. All right, now before you leave this individual, ask him if there is any way that you... Ask him if he knows who you are, and is there any way you can help him in his present predicament? Subject. All I get is that they must just wait. Doesn't know who I am, thinks he perceives I'm a hallucination or something. Monitor. Okay, when the others left, these people are waiting. When the others left, how did they go? Subject. Get an impression of a… don't know what the hell it is. It looks like the inside of a larger boat, very rounded walls, and shiny metal. Monitor. Go along with them on their journey and find out where it is they go. Subject. Impression of a really crazy place with volcanoes and gas pockets and strange plants. Very volatile place. It's very much like going from the frying pan into the fire. Difference is there seems to be a lot of vegetation where the other place did not have it. And different kind of storm. That is the end of the document. Now, I don't know if any of you are putting the puzzle pieces together like I was when I got deep into the research and reading for this episode, but holy cow. It is easy to see the similarities between this document and the others we've covered and just how much everything ties into everything else. If I didn't say it enough before, I highly recommend you read this document. It's only nine short, easy-to-read pages and is available online. That all being said, it's easy to feel some sort of doomed connection with the way things are going here on our planet. I couldn't help but think about nuclear disasters while doing this research, the wars and the pollution we've created as a human race, and how these things are destroying Earth. If we take a closer look at the Chernobyl disaster of 1986, for instance, and how the Soviets chose to initially cover up or downplay the severity of the situation it's easy to imagine what our world might look like had they succeeded in keeping the ordeal under wraps, at least for a time. Had the Forsmark nuclear power plant monitors in Sweden not detected the radiation in the atmosphere over a thousand kilometers away, alerting the world, theoretically, most of Europe could have been contaminated within weeks or months. Within days, the surrounding populations around Pripyat would likely begin succumbing to radiation sickness from unknown exposure they didn't know about. Later, the irradiated vegetation being sold in the out-of-town markets would infect those people, as well as the birds flying about in the contaminated atmosphere spreading the radiation even farther. The groundwater would be irradiated. Perhaps within years, all of Europe would be affected, infected, by radiation poisoning caused by the disaster. <laughs> but thank goodness that didn't happen right. With the arms race a seemingly never-ending battle between the world powers that be and the growing stockpile of government toys, and by toys I mean increasingly deadly weapons of mass destruction, biochemical warfare, you know, the works, the possibility of a total global nuclear war or meltdown or fallout is both sobering and chilling. As a human race, we could likely be subjected to a life of running from a nuclear radioactive threat much like in the book On the Beach, written by Neville Shute and published in 1957. If you've never read the book, I highly recommend it. It's incredibly depressing, but one of my favorite books. My high school English teacher had a thing for terribly sad reads, and I'm not talking smack because she was awesome. It's set in Australia after the world powers detonate nuclear bombs that release a deadly radiation, duh, that wipes out most life on the planet. The radioactive winds are making their way to Australia and the nearby areas, the last remaining human outposts, as far as they know. Families there watch and wait wait, Noticing sweltering temperatures and increasing tensions within their communities. There are death races, talks of euthanasia as a peaceful way to go before the radiation hits, and a bunch of other delightfully depressing shit. Alright, so some reading recommendations for you all. Of course, the books that make up the raw material. On the Beach by Neville Shute. The Big Book of Mars, From Ancient Egypt to the Martian, A Deep Space Dive into Our Obsession with the Red Planet, by Mark Hartzman. Stranger in a Strange Land, by Robert A. Heinlein. The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever, by Richard Hoagland. My Trip to Mars, by William Ferguson, link below. Mars Exploration, May 22nd, 1984. And that about wraps up this episode of the Primordia podcast, Your Source for Strange. We discussed possible life on Mars in the past and the present, listened to Martian warnings, and explored the other density landscapes of the Red Planet. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, if you are someone or you know someone who has a strange story to share, whether it's alien related, a case of deja vu, spooky stuff, or just an off-putting situation or occurrence, we'll feature it on our next episode. Just send us a message at primordia.bwc at gmail.com or shoot us a message or submit a post over on Facebook or Instagram, link in the podcast description. The previous episodes are available as transcripts for those that like to read along on the Primordia Podcast website, which is linked in the episode description. Or I'm sorry, in the podcast description. If there's anything else that you would like to see or hear as a listener, please let me know. And then one other thing I guess I would like to mention is Again, if you guys can, go ahead and check out Unearthing Paranormalcy on their Facebook page. Check out their podcast first and foremost, because it's fucking amazing. But check out their Facebook page, and if you can, uh, help Eli out. As always, thank you so much for listening. Stay strange.